Good evening, Australia and the rest of the world, and welcome to Under the Wire, your home for censored and suppressed information about vaccination and health. My name is Meryl Dory, and I am coming to you this week with an amazing interview with a person who I have wanted to speak with for many, many, many months, and probably many of you wanted to hear him for just about the same amount of time. Um, and his name... <laughs> Is, is Dr. Andy Kaufman. Sorry, I'm just trying to figure out why the screen seems to be breaking up. Um, I think I might be having some connectivity issues. Please let me know if you can see me because I am having trouble with seeing myself here. So um, hang on one second. So um, Thank you very much, and I'm sorry for being a little bit disjointed here. Um, as I think I said before, it does not look like we're streaming to the AVN Facebook page. If anyone here is actually seeing this on AVN, could you please let me know? Otherwise, I think we're just streaming on No Compulsory Vaccination and my personal page. And if that's the case, I could ask everybody to do me a very big favor, and that is to share this live stream if at all possible and make sure that uh, people are able to see it. So share it on your own pages, share it on uh, group pages, uh, all kinds of locations where people could use this information. I would be really grateful if you could do that. Um, and I'm just trying to see, we've only got five people on at this point in time, which is making me think that certainly Facebook is suppressing this. But be that as it may, um, you will be able to watch this later on. It'll be saved on Facebook, and it will also be saved on BitChute, Brighteon, and Rumble. So um, we will do our best to make sure that all this information gets out everywhere. Now, before I start the interview with Dr. Kaufman, which was pre-recorded earlier this week, I do want to let you know that we have three other interviews coming up in the next three nights. I did put up a, um, a Facebook Live a couple of days ago explaining why that is. I'm going away on the 5th of July on the Vaxxed New South Wales Central and Regional Tour, and um, as a result, I probably will not be doing any under the wires while I'm on the road. I was originally planning on saving many of these interviews until we were on the road. But unfortunately, or fortunately as the case may be, um, the information in most of them is just too time, um, timely and too important to put off. Tomorrow night, I have an interview with Dawn Richardson, who runs the National Vaccine Information Center's uh, advocacy portal. That is what the NVIC, which is the major American uh, page that does what the AVN does in Australia, um, that is what they use to actually activate people and um, make them into activists and advocates. So. Um, 
we have a video that Dawn has given us permission to share, and she will be speaking about how we can change things, how we can lobby our members of parliament, how we can bring about changes in legislation. Um, she has been doing this for over 25 years. She is she has a lot of expertise in how to do this. She is going to be speaking about what happens in the United States, but there is very little difference when it comes to these things between the American legislators and the legislators in Australia. So this was just too important, especially with new lockdowns coming on, uh, border closures, all of these restrictions on our basic human rights that are taking place right now. And also because of the um, use of the Department of Defense in Australia to run the uh, so-called COVID vaccination campaign, the experimental jab. Why in the world the military has been put in charge of this? I have no idea. Um, there's all kinds of things that we need to be active on. The use of the shots in children as young as 12 years of age when these children are at no risk from COVID, but a great deal of risk from the shots. So um, we all need to be working together on this. And Dawn Richardson has some brilliant ideas on what we can do. Now, Dr. Kelly Sutton is someone I'm going to be speaking with on Sunday night. Uh, Dr. Sutton is a medical doctor and an anthroposophical doctor in the United States. Anthroposophy is the medical um, profession as practiced uh, under Rudolf Steiner's philosophy for people who have children who've gone to Steiner schools or overseas Waldorf schools. Um, this will be very interesting. And as many doctors who practice medicine in ways that might be slightly different from the so-called standard of care mainstream practice, Dr. Sutton, Dr. Sutton has suffered greatly for wanting to help her patients and to support their rights to choose the type of medical and health care that they would like. So we'll be speaking with her, and I'm really looking forward to it. That will be a live interview. And then Monday night is the interview that many of you been wait, have been waiting for. And Monday night I'm speaking with Senator Malcolm Roberts of One Nation. Um, Senator Roberts is one of the only people in our federal parliament, aside from Craig Kelly, George Christensen, and um, Pauline Hansen, who are actually out there actively asking questions about why the government's policies surrounding this COVID um, are the way they are, why we have these restrictions, why they have suppressed access to effective and safe uh, first-line treatments such as ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, vitamin D3, vitamin C, zinc, uh, all of these other treatments that have been shown overseas in many, many large studies to be very, very safe and effective uh, at reducing deaths and hospitalizations from this respiratory disease um, have been suppressed in Australia. And the government has one answer and one answer only, and that is an experimental jab. So Senator Roberts asked some amazing questions at the Senate estimates hearings over the last three months, and we're going to be speaking with him about uh, why he chose to do that and what the plans are going forward with uh, One Nation helping to preserve our basic human rights. Now, one other thing that I do want to share with you, which is that um, 
I am leaving on the 5th of July for a VAX tour. This is what we've been talking about for a while. Now, the VAX tour is starting in Lismore and going Tenterfield, Glen Innes, Armadale, Tamworth, Narrabri, Moree, Walgett and Lightning Ridge, Burke, Cobar, Ningen, Dubbo, and Orange. We finish up in Orange, and we are still looking for a place to park the bus for about a month between Dubbo and Orange. Um, that would be fantastic. If anybody knows a secure, locked-up uh, facility that can store a 10-meter-long bus that is 3.5 meters high, please contact us and let us know. We are happy to pay for this. We just want to make sure that our beautiful black bus is going to be safe. Um, in between tours. So um, we are still looking for that. If anybody is interested in either coming to see the bus or in telling their stories on the bus, please do um, go to the AVN website. And I'm just going to try and get the uh, link put up here. So bear with me for one second, please. Um, I'm going to the No Compulsory Vaccination page because I think not sure, but I think that this might be uh, live streaming on no compulsory vaccination. Then again, I don't even see it on no compulsory vaccination. I have no idea where people are actually watching this. Uh, I have no comments. If anybody is watching this, can you please let me know where you're seeing it? I'd really appreciate that because we may be off of Facebook altogether, and I'm not really sure about that. Um, in any case, I can't share the link here, but if you go to avn.org.au, which is the AVN website, and just um, click on the picture of the Vaxed bus on the home page, that will take you to the page where you can book in to either see the bus, tell a vaccine injury story, or tell a story about um, your family that may uh, not have chosen to vaccinate and what your experience has been. Okay, um, no compulsory vaccination. Thank you, Helen. Uh, I didn't know. I've been there on the page and I couldn't see it, but it, I'm glad that it's there at least. Thank you very much for letting me know. And um, without further ado, I'm just going to give a brief introduction to Dr. Andy Kaufman. Um, Dr. Kaufman uh, has a medical degree and also a degree in psychiatry, and uh, he's very well respected in his fields. He has worked um, for a very long time in these areas and has been an expert. Um, like many people who choose not to necessarily go along with the party line, Dr. Kaufman has been uh, tarred with a very negative brush. Uh, it is very much like, I mean, I have been looking at this issue of vaccination and how viruses and bacteria may or may not affect us since 1991. Um, it's a very long time. <laughs> That's a very long time, actually, when I think about it. And in all that time, I have always believed that viruses can be pathogenic, though they're not always pathogenic. It is only since the beginning of the COVID situation that I have looked deeper into this, read the books of Thomas Cowan, and watched quite a few of the interviews of Dr. <clears throat> excuse me, Dr. Kaufman, and started thinking differently about viruses and whether they actually do what we have been told that they do. And it is a huge, 
huge paradigm shift to say that all the information that I have learned throughout my life about biology and viruses is in fact a lie. But I believe that to be the case in my personal opinion and from the research that I've been doing. And much like um, in the Middle Ages when Galileo uh, lived, everyone knew without a doubt that the Earth was at the center of the solar system and all of the planets and the sun actually revolved around the Earth. That was a given. Everybody knew that, except for one person uh, named Galileo who actually used his scientific expertise to look through telescopes and work out that actually it was the sun that was the center of the solar system and the planets actually revolved around the sun. And because he said that, even though he was able to prove that hypothesis, um, and the, the priests at that time looked through his telescope, and even though they could see that he was right, they insisted that he was wrong. He was put under house arrest for the rest of his life, and that's where he died. So um, he suffered greatly for speaking his truth. Dr. Kaufman, thank goodness, has not had to suffer that way, but he has certainly suffered, and his reputation has suffered, and despite that, he has continued to say what he believes to be true. And this is what we need more and more health professionals to come out and do. Um, Health professionals cannot be held harmless if their practices are harmful to the people that they are treating and they know that they're harmful. Many, many doctors know that vaccines and the experimental COVID jab are deadly and yet they continue to insist that they're not, just like the priests in the Middle Ages insisted that the earth was at the center of the solar system. It is time for you to speak up. It is time for you to get together with other moral and ethical practitioners. And it is time for all of us to listen to what Dr. Kaufman has to say about this issue. Thank you so much. We will now go to Dr. Kaufman. Okay, I'm here with Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Andy, it's so good to see you. Thank you so much for joining us on Under the Wire. I appreciate that. Um, you're someone I've followed for some time, and you have uh, a viewpoint on viruses uh, that not a lot of doctors have been aware of. And I have to say, I've been researching this for 30 years, and it's only in the last probably 14 or 15 months that I've come to understand how misled we've all been. So um, the first question I'd like to ask you is, do viruses actually exist? We're going to jump right into it. Yeah, well, that's uh, obviously a very key question right now. And I think part of uh, the answer has to be to say, what do you mean by a virus? Because there are little particles that can only be seen under the electron microscope, but there are no such particles that can make anyone sick. So if you say, you know, a virus is what causes illnesses um, in animals and humans, then no, there's no such uh, thing. Okay. And that is something that a lot of people are going to have trouble understanding. Um, what, what I've learned over the last little while is there are particles or proteins or whatever that we call viruses. There are things that are called exosomes. And there are other things called, I think it's bacteriophages. And um, they are all basically identical. Is that correct? Or do they 
perform different roles? Yeah, no, they're uh, they're distinct from each other. They have different functions and uh, in different organisms, but all these things, what they have in common is that they're size. So they're all in the scale of nanometers, which is like a billionth of a meter. And so they can't be seen with a regular light microscope that you can see bacteria and fungi and, you know, blood cells and things like that. But bacteriophages uh, only form in pure cultures of bacteria, and they have a very distinct appearance, like they have a unique shape. They kind of look like alien spaceships, actually, and uh, perhaps you can add an image later. And those have been, you know, found in these bacterial cultures, and they can be purified so that you just see these bacteriophage particles under a microscope and nothing else. And then they've done experiments on them where they extract the genetic material and sequence them. And so they're fully characterized in real things. There are also similar particles that they found in, in sea algae. In fact, there's a, a German uh, scientist who discovered one of these, they call them giant viruses, and found that they actually help the sea algae um, community survive better. So rather than causing, you know, disease as we're told what viruses are, but those are only, you know, in microscopic organisms that those are seen. Uh, nothing like that is seen in animals or humans. So what the particles are that they're talking about when they show you a picture and they say it's a virus that causes disease is actually the result of disease. So when our cells are damaged um, from a variety of causes uh, and essentially go through a dying process, they degenerate and put off all these tiny little particles. And some of them are called exosomes, and those have been pretty well characterized like uh, in certain disease states where they would take them out of the fluid directly of the body part, like for example, in lung cancer, they can take uh, exosomes out of the lung fluid directly and purify them so that, you know, they all are the same size and shape and density. And then they can do experiments like see what kind of um, materials they're made of and such like that. So those are all real things. But this thing that they're saying is a virus is just essentially a misunderstanding done from a very poor experiment. And they kind of went back on themselves because they were looking for these particles in people with diseases they thought were caused by viruses back in the 1940s and early 50s after the electron microscope was invented. And at that time, they realized that they couldn't distinguish anything that was unique or predominant. All they saw was debris of dying cells. And they pretty much had given up until this um, kind of fraudulent experiment came about in 1954 uh, from John Franklin Enders, who incidentally won the Nobel Prize shortly after that. But for unrelated work, it was work related to the polio vaccine. And it turns out that this procedure that they came up with that later they said actually proved the existence of a virus is the same exact way they make a vaccine. Uh, for these so-called illnesses. So really what they were doing is making a vaccine that had a lot of commercial potential and just kind of fudging the fact that there was actually a virus in the first place. And 
somehow this caught on and perpetuated to the present day, and they're still using the same uh, kind of essentially trickery that they used back then. It's, it's not surprising, actually, for anybody who's been studying this area for any time at all, that um, what happens is the conclusion is come to, arrived at before, and then the studies are designed to basically prove that conclusion. And we've seen this with bacterial vaccines and also with viral vaccines. We've really been lied to for 200 plus years over how um, vaccines are supposed to work. And, and the whole viral issue is one that um, I think it, it's amazing how an idea takes hold of a community and cognitive dissonance sets in and nobody can ever question <laughs> that idea again. Um, the, the whole thing is, you know, we're told that viruses are bits of protein, RNA, DNA, and, um, and they are not alive, which is why they can't be grown in normal culture. Um, but yet we are told that there are live virus vaccines and there are uh, products that are sold all the time that kill 99.9% .9 of all viruses. How do you kill something that's not actually <laughs> living? I don't understand that. Well, you know, when you see these obvious contradictions, it's really a signal that um, there's something wrong with this whole concept in the first place, because, you know, how do you explain it, right? Because they, they do say that it's alive, but then say that it's not alive. And certainly, you know, if you look at biology, the definition of what makes a thing a living organism, the uh, virus doesn't meet really any of the criteria. So, yeah, it's, it is quite shocking how unscientific science can be uh, when it comes to this issue. One thing that has always stopped me from actually accepting that this entire uh, situation is a lie is the idea of outbreaks. We have seen outbreaks. We've seen people who come down with similar symptoms at the same time. We've had outbreaks of rash diseases that we're told are measles. We've had outbreaks of respiratory diseases that we're told are whooping cough. I mean, whooping cough is bacterial, so that's a bit different. But um, how does your theory explain why these things can happen in an outbreak situation uh, if the viruses are not the cause. I hope I explained that correctly. Well, uh, you did, but it, it actually highlights a couple of important points. Is One is like, I don't have a theory, uh, really. What I'm saying is that this is a theory put out that viruses cause illness. And if you look at the evidence uh, behind it, you see that there is none. So I'm saying that there's not enough evidence to say that this theory is real or it's, it's valid, right? In other words, it's disproved. But in terms of what might cause contagion, I mean, that, that is a, a field that is something that we should really look at uh, in a scientific way because what we see, first of all, it doesn't really confirm the germ theory, if you think about it. But also just observing that people die or get sick in certain patterns, it doesn't tell you anything about the cause, right? You have to, it might give you an idea of what might be the cause, but you can't tell from just that information. You have to do further experiments to determine what's the cause of something. But for example, if germs were the cause, then every single person in a family would get sick every time. 
because they're passing the germ around, right? And the germ causes the illness, so they should all be sick. But that almost never happens. So you have to say, well, why doesn't this actually fit with the theory that's proposed? That should really be the question. Yes, and even in epidemics, it's only a very tiny percentage of the population that contracts whatever illness happens to be going around. Um, we, we do tend to... And yeah, Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say there are um, obvious examples where we do know the cause of something. Uh, like, for example, when we have uh, a nuclear uh, leak, right, like uh, uh, Fukushima, for example, then all the people in that area were all exposed to a toxin, right? In that case, it was uh, radioactivity. So you'd see all the people getting symptoms of it because they had essentially a common exposure. So that's something that we are familiar with, and that you know, is scientifically demonstrable. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, I would say, well, look at that. Uh, you know, this happens commonly with food poisoning, for example. Like I, I was at a family reunion a number of years ago, and we all had this big dinner at a restaurant the last night. And when we all returned home, there were like text messages and phone calls going around, you know, who was sick. And, you know, it turned out anyone who ate a certain dish uh, was uh, spending a lot of time in the bathroom that night, <laughs> right? And uh, no one said there was a, uh, a virus passing around there. We knew that, you know, there was something spoiled in the, in the meal. Yes, and it makes sense. I mean, a theory that I've heard a lot that actually seems really logical to me is that all symptoms, all disease symptoms that we suffer are actually symptoms caused by toxicity of one kind or another. So that would explain the uh, the food poisoning episodes, what happens when someone's exposed to radiation, uh, you know, our poor diet, all of those right. things increase well, toxicity. Well, let's not forget, let's not forget also malnutrition, right? Because we had uh, things like scurvy. And, you know, scurvy, which is a deficiency of vitamin C, it was thought for a long time to be something contagious that people passed uh, between them. And then, you know, they started eating citrus fruit and it all went away and changed the theory. And I believe uh, with beriberi, which is a B vitamin deficiency, there was a, a similar story. So it's important to denote that. And, you know, we think that we don't have nutritional deficiencies in uh, the developed world these days, but that's actually not true because uh, some deficiencies are designed into the Western diet. Absolutely. Lots of food, but very little nutrition. Um, that's what we are experiencing in the Western diet, and it can lead to a lot of diseases as well. Um, and this may be a little bit out of left field, but... Um, one of the other questions, and it, I've seen this in my own experience, is that uh, a so-called live virus vaccine will be administered in a school, say measles or mumps, and the people who got the shot will develop the symptoms of measles or the, the, the symptoms of mumps, and people who are around them who didn't receive the vaccine will also develop those same symptoms. Is there any explanation? I know that it's very likely that a virus is not involved, but is there some way in which you think that sort of event can happen? Yeah, well, I mean, what you're basically injecting with a live virus is a, a poison cell culture, 
So they start with someone with the disease in question um, originally, and they try to take some body fluid. So for example, if it caused skin lesions like uh, mumps, they might take the fluid from the skin lesion. Um, and then they add that to some kind of cell culture, and they often use monkey kidney cells. It became the standard in 1954, but they may use other types of cell cultures. And then they add other ingredients to that that um, stress the cell culture, and essentially it becomes damaged and dies. And then they take the fluid from that concoction. Uh, it's essentially, you know, growing rotting tissue uh, with bacteria, like if you put you know, coughed up uh, some nasty phlegm when you were sick and put it out on the kitchen counter and left it for a couple of weeks, it would be roughly equivalent to what we're talking about. And then they take that fluid um, and just filter out the particles. Um, and it's like a toxic soup. And that's a live virus vaccine. So you're injecting some of the same types of poisons and so it might express the same way depending on the health of the person. But we know that the damage caused by these vaccine concoctions is actually quite variable. Um, so it, you know, the biggest example I know that it's mimicking the illness that it's supposed to be for is with the polio vaccine. And in fact, that is by far the largest cause of what you might call polio, which is really a uh, paralysis uh, that can be variable you know, in, in expression, but it's because it's, you know, neurologically toxic. So there could be, you know, something to that, that it's the same kind of poison that might bring about the same symptoms, but I don't think that's a universal uh, finding. No. Can a normal virus, I mean, if we're calling viruses or an exosome or anything, can a person who has these things in their system transmit them to another person. I mean, we haven't proven they've existed, have, have we? So, so what, I, what I'm saying is that there is no such thing as a particle out in the environment that comes into our body and invades us. All these particles like exosomes, they're just normal breakdown products of our own cells, right? It's just like, uh, you know, you might, um, uh, <clears throat> I'm trying to think of uh, an analogy, but you know, anything that, that might fall off you, like you, you might have skin flaking, right? That's like ca causing dust, right? It's just like that inside your body, these little things coming off and they may have different functions. That's an area of research. It's relatively young. They may, you know, transmit information to other parts of your body and things like that. And they may get out and I mean, they, they can be in your saliva, um, so they can get out there, but these things are so tiny, like the chance that they would encounter, you know, another being is probably extremely low, but even if they did, it's like we exchange information with the environment all the time. Every time we breathe in, right, we have microorganisms coming right into our lungs. Every time, you know, we take a bite of something, more of them come in and they, don't make us sick, of course, but they exchange information with the microorganisms in our body about the environmental conditions that we're in. Mm -hmm. And that helps our body prepare, you know, to, for whatever situation there is. Yep. So it's a very, you know, useful thing. It, it's funny. One of the most, um, the wisest things I've ever heard was at a seminar on autism, probably close to 20 years ago, there was a scientist who came out from the United States and she said that God uh, was very clever because he gave us eyes that can't see very small things because 
if we were able to actually see, we would see that every surface on our body, on our eyes, on our hands, is covered in a thick coating of what we would consider pathogens, fungi, all these things, and we don't get sick from it because we're meant to be in this, and yet here we're being told that the SARS virus or the measles virus is what's making us all sick. And according to everything that you and Dr. Cowan have said, we have absolutely no evidence that that's the fact, and all of this has been built on a, a, a foundation of lies, basically. Yeah. I mean, the truth is that all of these little organisms that live on us and with us, they're really us. Like we're really a community of them. The cells of just the bacteria and fungi, I think, outnumber our own human cells like 10 to 1. And that doesn't count so many other organisms. And, you know, I was just thinking of an example like that there are these uh, sharks and whales that have these other little fish that like uh, swim like right next to them. And sometimes they go into their mouth and pick out their things in their teeth or they eat little parasites off their body. Right. And they're just always hanging around and the sharks or the whales don't don't mind because they're performing a good function. Well, the truth is we all have organisms like this um, on our body. We just may not see them. They could be microscopic, like the mites that live in your uh, eyelashes, for example, right? Eating the flakes of uh, skin and other things that come off. So this is, uh, you know, how we really are designed and all these little creatures are part of us and they enrich us and, and help us heal and stay healthy. Yes. And, and it is something that we have been taught to fear. And I think fear, I mean, you're a psychiatrist, yeah. so fear has been used very effectively um, throughout the, probably the last 100 years, but especially within the last 15 months. Um, and there have now been uh, documents leaked from, for instance, Neil Ferguson talking about how we have to use the media to increase the fear so that people will accept the vaccine uh, and, and accept all the, uh, the lockdowns and the masking and all these things that people ordinarily wouldn't accept. So, you know, how is it from your experience of psychology, and I, I should say that you have actually worked as a forensic psychiatrist, um, and, and I think that that's the sort of experience that can be very useful at a time like this. How is it yeah, that it is it so easy? A lot. <laughs> I can only imagine. But how is it that it's so easy for us to fool so many people so quickly and so effectively? How does that work? Well, one thing is it really hasn't been quickly. Um, this has been in the works for quite a long time, and uh, there's been so much research uh, used to develop systems of, you know, propaganda. They changed the name to public relations. You know, it's all kinds of different things, but there is a, a vast amount of knowledge, and this really starts our whole lives. I mean, think about when you first learn about things being contagious, you know, probably when you were a little baby running around coughing or sneezing or told to stay away from someone else who was. Um, then, you know, you go through the school system, which is based on, you know, authoritarian information, official uh, versions of stories kind of given to you without teaching, you know, critical thinking or anything like that. And um, you're taught to be obedient, especially, you know, in times of emergency. Like it, it occurred to me recently, all those 
fire drills or other drills. There were, you know, bomb shelter drills, all kinds of things, depending on exactly what era you grew up. But, you know, where you had to be single file, you know, military style, follow directions, like without question, right? I think that's actually prepared us for this situation. And when they made this announcement at the beginning in March of uh, 20, they were pretty much prepared to create as much fear as possible. Um, in addition to the Neil Ferguson uh, document you're referring to, there was actually an article in the Telegraph uh, in the UK. There's some committee, I forget the name of it, but it's in there, where one of the members, a psychologist, wrote a book actually telling uh, about what they were really going on and warning of totalitarianism because they were essentially developing strategies to maximize the fear as much as possible because fear is you know, a well-known tool of manipulation of the masses. You can do so many things when people are in fear, they, they'll follow direction and you can do um, conditioning like uh, Pavlov's dog. It's uh, much more effective in a, the context of fear. And you see how people just, you know, jumped and did whatever they were told when they thought they were facing, you know, a, a certain death. Yes, it it's, um, alerts a different part of the brain, doesn't it? Is it called the limbic system? That it it and you can't use your critical thinking skills if you're in a state of terror, and and you're right. This has been going on for a while. Uh, I remember the the last twenty years. Every two years, there was going to be another epidemic that was going to kill us all. You know, SARS, MERS, Ebola, all of these things, and each time it turned out not to be what we were told it was going to be, and yet people still continue to believe it. And now I, I know that I've spoken with many people in my family who I consider to be incredibly intelligent, and I've shared information with them, and they don't even want to look at it. They've taken the shots, and they, they just think, you know, why are you believing this conspiracy theory, Meryl? Why are you not listening to what the peop the doctors, the people who really know about this are telling us? You know, you're, you're really making a big mistake. You're going to end up getting sick and dying from uh, COVID. And they just will not listen to anything. And it's very frustrating and rather sad because I do think that a lot of them are going to succumb to whatever this shot's going to do. If it's not this one, it's going to be the next booster down the track. Um, and it's, do you have any tools for how people can communicate with other people about this issue to make them actually even just take a look? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's an integral part of the plan of manipulation and mind control and hypnosis to make people not able to listen to even facts, right? If you look at the communist playbook, uh, it's right out of that. So there's really no way that you can reach someone uh, with reason. If you have a close relationship, you, you know, you may be able to appeal on some kind of emotional basis, but uh, that's certainly an individual, uh, you know, choice to make. If people are curious, you can ask questions and you can tell if they're curious. And if, if someone's curious, then you can talk to them. But uh, I think that the best thing you can do is, you know, try to respect people um, and, uh, you know, hope for the best. Yeah. Respect is a very important part of this. And it's something that 
people on our side don't get a whole lot of because uh, there is that fear. And one of the things that I've seen with this uh, pandemic plan is to divide us and to make it us against them. It's exactly what happened in Nazi Germany. It's what happened in the 1930s um, throughout uh, the countries that were communist. Um, there was this us versus them uh, mentality, and I see that very much now. Um, but let's get back to the science, uh, if I can. Uh, I want to talk to you about the way that we are using PCR tests right now to make it seem like there is a pandemic happening, uh, the, what you call the case-demic. And I'll just go to one of your slides if I can. Um, it is this fear around this tiny little thing that you say has never actually been isolated or identified. First of all, that image of the little ball with the little crown around it, has that ever actually been shown in electron micrographs to exist? Has that been seen? Well, not anything looking like that. Uh, that's just a graphic artist's uh, rendering, but that's the popularized image. Um, there are particles with little uh, smaller circles around them that can be seen in all sorts of uh, different microscopic images. Uh, things that have nothing to do with viruses as well as when they're claiming that it's a coronavirus. Um, but these, once again, are just the particles of dead and dying cells. And interestingly, there are two papers out there, one in a journal called Kidney, where they found these in kidney biopsies and they noted that, oh, it looks exactly the same. This could be confusing. And they referenced a CDC uh, document uh, from earlier on, I believe in 2003, and the CDC in the United States actually acknowledged that they can't tell the difference uh, between these particles. So essentially you can show the presence of particles, but you, you don't know anything about them because they're just in an image with a dying cell and lots of other particles because they never you know, took these things out of nature. Um, for other than, you know, just in normal tissue samples. Andy, this is not science. This is superstition. This is a belief system. It's got nothing to do with fact. Um, because we find particles, it doesn't mean that they actually play any role in any way without testing them. And I remember reading many, many years ago about a study that was done in during the uh, the supposed flu epidemic in 1918, where they took people who had flu symptoms and they, um, they, they took fluid from their nose and injected it into other people and they didn't get sick. They yeah, had yeah. them sit and, and sneeze on people and they didn't get sick. It, it wasn't just people with flu symptoms. It was people in the you know, Spanish flu ward of the hospital. So they were hospitalized patients. They were very ill. And you're right, they had um, recruited a group of prisoners that they promised um, freedom if they survived the experiment. And they tested them three different ways, uh, trying with all the snot and the, and the uh, stuff they coughed up. And even they took tears and they tried to, you know, put it in them three different ways, including injecting it and squirting it up their nose and down their throat. And not one person got sick. 
Um, so that that's one of the only studies actually done on contagion uh, like like that, um, because, you know, they say that it's it's unethical um, to study contagion, but it is ethical to give an experimental genetic uh, modifying injection uh, to the masses, to everyone in the world. <laughs> I think their idea of ethics is a little bit twisted. But when we look at medical ethics journals, we can see why that is, because most of them are the most unethical experiments you could possibly imagine. Um, so I think well, med medical ethics is really another word for eugenics, um, because, you know, one of the, the main uh, influence in, in terms of the material that they're talking about is essentially the same. And one of the biggest issues is what they call death panels which is uh, creating a, some authoritative body who decides uh, who, you know, with a certain illness is m essentially worthy of receiving care or who should be just euthanized or left to die. Yeah, I've seen that a lot in the UK. Do they have that in the United States as well? Well, that's the, the academic subject matter of uh, medical ethics. And in fact, uh, a medical ethics professor was just um, appointed to a major position in the uh, Biden administration. I, I can't remember the, the name and the position, but I'm sure one of the viewers will know. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, we, we saw that throughout but, uh, the- you know, Sorry, go ahead. I just wanted to kind of add, because you had brought this up you know, a few times about uh, maybe people not being informed or that, you know, very few, I mean, almost no doctors are saying what I'm saying. And I want to say the reason for that is not because I have a wacky opinion, but it's because none of them know uh, anything about how viruses are, are discovered. In fact, uh, none of them have read any of the papers where they claim to have discovered a virus that they say causes a disease. If they looked into that, or if you just, you know, I mean, if you go, you should, you know, do this, go to your doctor next time and say, hey, how do they discover a new virus? Like they'll, they'll have no idea. And uh, they probably won't, won't look into it. But if they do, um, and they understand the, what the paper is doing, they'll, they'll say the same thing that I say. And in fact, every other doctor, and there haven't been very many who have been willing, but every other one who has really looked at this issue and read the paper uh, has changed their mind. Yeah, and a lot of them have probably been ridiculed or maybe even lost their licenses as a result of coming public. You, um, Well, I don't know if they necessarily have gone public <laughs> because of that. Um, yeah. And how I mean, you know, the, it, if you ask any of the, it, well, if you ask any of the doctors like me or any other, you know, prominent health professionals like, you know, former uh, drug company employees or academic scientists who are speaking publicly about this, they will pretty much all confess that they have several colleagues or former colleagues that agree with them in private, but are, you know, because of the risks uh, to their career and reputation, et cetera, are unwilling to speak publicly about it. And I can understand that intellectually, but emotionally and morally, I think it's absolutely the wrong thing to do. And have right. you yourself suffered? Well, they probably don't. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I was going to say that they probably don't realize the seriousness of the current situation, that it's not just some 
you know, something wrong in their little sector, but that it's actually, you know, in every sector and, you know, it's, it's a world changing process and events. But uh, yeah, of course, you know, I, I, I don't know about suffered, but I've certainly had consequences of uh, saying the things that I say. And, you know, many of my former friends and colleagues are uh, not, not fans, <laughs> we could yeah. say. Yeah. And of course, I, uh, I also uh, was terminated from my uh, last job as a licensed physician uh, on account of refusing to wear a mask. And yeah. I think also, you know, because just public speaking about the situation, even though, of course, I never said anything bad about that uh, place that I worked at, because I wouldn't have worked there if I didn't think they were doing some good things. <laughs> yeah. Um, when when you shut down any dissenting viewpoint, that's not science, because science, well, science is never settled, d despite what people say. You always have to test, retest, and be open to looking at the results, even if they challenge what you believe to be true. So it's, uh, it's yeah, science has fallen. Well, we don't, we don't really have science anymore because, like you said, that is, you know, the spirit of inquiry and uh, always trying to disprove the prevailing theory because that's how you validate that, it, that it's true or you get rid of it and, and uh, put something else in its place. Mm -hmm. But it's really changed because of the financing of the system. Like it's gotten to the point that to do sophisticated research, you need quite a lot of funding. And there's really only one funding source, which is the government. But it's the government is influenced by uh, industry, especially, you know, the pharmaceutical industry when it comes to healthcare, and uh, to a lesser degree, the medical device industry. So if you look and I, I did this because when I was a younger professor, I wanted to actually do research full time. And in order to do that, you need to have a grant because that will actually pay your salary, which is a pretty measly <laughs> compared to doing clinical work. Uh, you know, I'm not saying it was $10 an hour, but it was probably half uh, the salary that you would make if you saw patients. And basically what happens is that you go to the National Institutes of Health and they have all these different departments that fund different research. And there are a couple of other agencies like that were relevant to me, like the National Institutes of Justice, since I was uh, in forensic psychiatry. But they pretty much tell you what you they want you to research. And that's only thing the only things they fund, like there are ways that you could put in a general grant, but unless it fits one of their policy or programs, you know, there's really no chance of getting funding. So the whole system is really controlled, whereas it used to be, you know, if you were an academic scientist, you were paid by the university um, a salary and, you know, uh, funding for your research. And you were supposed to, you know, just follow your curiosity and, you know, learn about the natural world. And that that's really the spirit of what science should be. Those halcyon days. So let's say you went and got a grant and they told you, we want you to study X, Y and Z. And you went and studied it, and the result that you came up with was not a result that they actually wanted. Would you still get paid? Would that result be published? Well, um, you know, it, it's kind of hard to say. So, for example, let's say if you were going to study antidepressants, 
and you know for some condition like let's say for panic attacks and you did a study and it was not favorable then chances are it wouldn't get published in fact most investigators wouldn't even try to publish a negative paper like that so you would be at a loss there and then it depends on who is funding it and you know what the purpose like if the you know you were in the national institutes of mental health and they had certain objectives and your research was not in line or successful in their eyes, then they would be less likely to give you future grants. You so, know, and there's yeah. a whole gamesmanship to this too. <laughs> like in uh, in Canada, it's a little bit different because they have, I mean, they have the same system there, but they, at the universities, they have like a grant writing department that they write the grants for the professors. And uh, so they basically use all the, you know, buzzwords and, you know, tricks in order to get uh, funded. And uh, that, that's, you know, it's like a game that you have to play to keep it going. And the people that I know uh, uh, personally who were the best funded essentially were doing um, dr psychiatric drug research and they kept showing uh, lots of um, results that would support the use of more pharmaceuticals. So they were very popular with the drug companies and they would continue to get funding. I'd love to get you back on the show another time after this COVID thing is done to talk to you about psychiatric drugs and the whole situation there, because that's something that I'm also really interested in. But let's bring it back to COVID because that's what everybody wants to hear about. It's all COVID all the time. Um, <laughs> I know it's, it's, I'm really getting sick of it, but I think that we have to keep talking about it and looking at it so that we can wake other people up. So we talked about how this is a case-demic, and I'm not sure if you're aware of what's been happening in Australia. We've had a total of one death since January in the entire country. Um, that has been put down as a death from COVID. Um, we have, I think, one or two people in a hospital. You're right saying now. that's the official? That is that's the, the official, official record? Death, the official wow. record. And um, our health minister, Greg Hunt, uh, is, is saying that it's probably going to be another six months before we open our borders to the rest of the world because he's looking at what's happening overseas and it may not be worth the risk to bring this in because after all, our policies have been so incredibly successful. Uh, we've only had one death this year. Despite that, um, there were two cases, cases, in Sydney, which is a city, I'm in New South Wales, Sydney is in New South Wales. It's basically like the distance from New York to the panhandle of Florida, um, from New York to Florida for the distance from where I am to Sydney. And um, there were two cases mm -hmm. that were Like reported. 24 hours of driving? Oh, it's about 12 hours. It's not 24 hours. I, I haven't driven okay, to Florida so then for it's a long halfway. time. Halfway. <laughs> <laughs> I That's used to all right. do that when I was a kid, and I, th I thought I remembered it being 12 hours. But, you know, when you're a kid, things are very different. Um, so despite that, um, the entire state is now on a mask mandate. And Queensland, which is the state about two hours north of me, has closed its borders to New South Wales um, and 
Victoria, the state south of us, which has had the most draconian lockdowns, mask mandates since this started, they have had, out of the 910 deaths in Australia total since this started, 820 of them came from the state of Victoria, which was the one that had the most draconian policies. So we have a definite case-demic going on in Australia, where even one case is considered to be too much. So if you're okay, I would like to talk about the PCR test and how it's being used to keep this panic and case-demic going. That's the wrong one, sorry. Yep, I do want to talk about this. I'm back to the same slide. So tell us about the PCR test a little bit and how it is used in these situations. Well, it's, it's really pretty simple. It's a tool of manipulation. Um, it's a test that is very easy by several different ways to manipulate uh, the results that you can get any outcome you want. If you want all the samples to be positive for anything that you test, you can easily manipulate that. If you want zero samples to be positive, you can manipulate that or pretty much anything in between. So that's why it's a very convenient and uh, useful procedure for this. Um, it's not really a diagnostic test at all. It's a more of a manufacturing process to um, amplify or copy and produce more of or clone tiny little um, or uh, amounts of genetic material, sometimes even like one single piece of DNA or RNA could actually be um, amplified and detected by this procedure. But this has nothing to do with any illness because it wasn't even validated. Um, any you know test that you propose as a diagnostic test, what you you have to compare it to the gold standard of something. Um, so, for example, if you wanted to develop a pregnancy test, the gold standard would be a baby comes out of the woman you know at nine months, um, and you'd compare the results of whatever test to that. Uh, you know, if the outcome is a, a blood clot, then the gold standard might be to actually have the blood clot at autopsy or um, an angiogram, which shows where exactly where the blood flow stops, where the clot is um, in the blood vessel. And then you can come up with another test like uh, what's called a VQ scan, which is a, another test for blood clots in the lung. And you compare the results to the angiogram. And then you get an error rate and you say, okay, this test is 80% accurate and 20% is error uh, or whatever it is. And then depending on how good that is, you decide if it's a reasonable test. And then you also know that when you do the test, how it might be wrong, like is it more likely to be false positive or false negative? And a false positive is when uh, a person that doesn't have the condition tests positive. And a false negative is when someone that does have the condition tests negative. And all these tests uh, that are not the gold standard and even some gold standards have error in them. So in order to use any test, the first thing you do is this validation study, in which so you get an error rate. And then you decide if the test is worth using and how to use it. But that has never been done uh, with the, this PCR test at all. So we have no idea you know what the significance of it clinically is it's actually i would say it's completely meaningless and it's just something that can easily be manipulated and this is why you can test a a, a rain puddle or a piece of fruit 
and get a positive result because it doesn't matter what you're testing. Uh, in fact, at least one person just took the testing swab out of the uh, tube and then put it right back in and it was a positive test. So, wow. so it's just a tool of manipulation and um, you can tell this in more detail because they don't have a standard protocol even. And that leaves it free in any geographic area. So, you know, it could be, you know, in Victoria or New South Wales, or it could be, you know, just in Sydney or just in a neighborhood in Sydney that they could do the testing by a different protocol and have a totally different results. Like there were uh, some documents that revealed that soon after the, you know, genetic vaccine injections came out, they changed the protocol to reduce the number of positives and make it look like the vaccine was effective. Only in the vaccination. And right? that's all the... Well, you know, they, they did it timing-wise. They did it for the overall population in certain places to, you know, use lower amplification cycles. So you get, you know, you might get from 20% positive to 8% positive. And then you say, look, the, in that time, this many people got vaccinated. It must be because of the vaccine that we have lower case rates and it makes the vaccine look good and you get a story out of it. And that, you know, they can manipulate it any which way quite easily um, to produce these kinds of, uh, you know, storylines that are scientifically completely meaningless, you know, have no validity whatsoever. Yeah. And even on the paperwork that you get back from the hospital or the lab when you've had one of these PCR tests, it says that this test has not been validated uh, or you know confirmed uh, for accuracy. What about the antibody tests? Have you looked at those at all? We're not using them a lot. No, it's there is so there. There's not one uh, test that that has been gone through any validation process, and it's important to know that you know. I'm not sure exactly what the words you use in Australia for this, but I'm sure you'll know what I'm talking about. So when we have a diagnostic test or a therapeutic, uh, you know, like a, a pharmaceutical or a vaccine comes out, it goes to the regulatory agency, which is the FDA in the United States, and it gets um, approved, but which means they have to submit a lot of data from studies to show that it's safe and effective. And in the case of a diagnostic test, they have to show that it's valid and has, you know, known parameters that make it a good diagnostic test. Um, and in fact, I actually was preparing an application for a medical device that was a diagnostic test. So I looked at this um, specifically. And what you have in this situation worldwide now is that not one test or therapeutic for COVID has been approved by any health agency they've they're allowed to be used under an emergency uh condition or in the, in the united states it's called emergency use authorization now that designation what it ha really is has been used for is when someone is basically about to die and they've exhausted all of the approved treatments that they could try an experimental treatment that gave that has this emergency designation. And it's, it was extremely difficult, by the way, to get this, like such that there are a lot of cancer patients, for example, that were just trying to get some kind of natural therapy and they died waiting for the FDA to even rule on it. So that's the way that 
every test was approved and every uh, jab was, was given authorization, not approval. Uh, see, even I trip up on the words because all the mainstream media report as if it was actually approved. And so if you're not satisfied that I'm telling the truth here, the agencies actually publish the, these documents. So the FDA, for example, they send a letter to the company that makes the you know, PCR test. And it says this letter gives you authorization for emergency use of this test. And in it, it says, you know, like there's basically it's reasonable to le believe this test might be accurate. Wow. <laughs> you know, that's the standard. <laughs> Whereas the standard for approval is that you've clearly demonstrated that this has an accuracy rate of 98% or whatever. Um, so all of these things are basically worthless. They're unproven, experimental and meaningless if you look closely because they haven't even been validated. Mm -hmm. So all of this is just the way that you're being manipulated to accept these policies, which essentially remove your freedom. And But people, of course, they're believing it because of the factors we described earlier. Yeah, because science. So. So um, we have tests. Now, I have, I have to check in Australia. We don't have emergency use authorization. We've got provisional approval. And um, it's part of a clinical trial. I think it's a phase three trial that ends in uh, 2023, depending on the shot that we're talking about. It's different times in 2023. The most, uh, the latest one is September 2023. But I haven't actually looked at what sort of approval the tests have been given. Uh, we have two PCRs and one uh, antigen test. So I have to check that out and I will do that before uh, I put this to air because it would be interesting right. to find out. We have a similar organization to the FDA here. It's called the TGA. It's the Therapeutic Goods Administration. And even though they are a government department, I know the FDA gets about 30% of its funding from the pharmaceutical industry and the rest of it from government. The TGA is 100% industry funded. They operate under cost recovery, so they get they have to get all their operating expenses covered by licensing fees for the therapeutic goods that they approve. So if they don't approve therapeutic goods, they can't possibly operate. So this is our watchdog who is completely dependent on the industry that they're supposed to be overseeing. Um, it doesn't make any sense, but I'm just throwing that out there. Um, we have already pretty well determined that um, according to the research that you've done, viruses don't exist. They can't be transmitted from one person to another in the form of causing disease. And um, there is... Well, how can you transmit something that doesn't exist? That's right. That's right. <laughs> but my question is something that has come up time and time again over the last six weeks or so, and I've seen it in myself as well, that if you are around someone who has taken this genetic modification device that I'm not going to call a vaccine, that it can make you ill with certain symptoms. Um, how does that work? Do we have any idea what is actually being transmitted? I'm not going to call it shedding, but transmitted from one person to another. Is there anything? Is it all in our heads? Is it a signal of some kind? Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, uh, the true answer is I'm not really sure. I'm not uh, even sure if it's a real thing. 
So I'm participating in some research right now trying to see if it really is an actual phenomenon because, you know, we are hearing all these rumors about this, right? So it'd be really easy to misinterpret things um, just like people misinterpreted, you know, having COVID when there's no such thing that exists. So I think I'd take a cautious approach. Um, it's hard to conceive of a way that something would actually be, you know, transmitted. Uh, there certainly is a period of time that it seems to be that people receiving this genetic um, modification actually make the spike protein. It's been found in the blood in one small study. You know, I think it's more interesting that they didn't actually study this uh, before putting it out there to the public where they could just see, you know, is the spike protein actually made by the cells and which cells in the body? Where does it go? How much of it does it keep getting made for how long? You know, all these questions. But, you know, the spike protein is certainly a toxin, but can it survive outside of the body without being de denatured? You know, can enough of it be spread to another person? I think that there's no real precedent in nature where a protein goes from one person to another and causes disease. I mean, we do exchange proteins anytime we exchange body fluids. Like in your saliva, there are many proteins, there are digestive enzymes, there are antibodies and various other things. And when you kiss someone, you know, your antibodies don't attack their mouth. Um, although, you know, that fits with the theory of immunity. So it's hard to say that, you know, that a spike protein that might be in someone's saliva would, you know, cause illness in another person. Um, there certainly could be an empathy uh, type of effect taking place. And uh, I don't know if this, you know, is true either, but it, it makes sense to me where that people in our community, obviously, we're very concerned. We know this is a very dangerous product. And anyone that we know who takes it, who we care about, we're going to be very concerned about their safety and well-being. And then we could manifest a psychosomatic reaction, uh, you know, like a sympathetic, uh, you know, in sympathy or empathy to that person's uh, you know, putting themselves at risk or if they get some kind of adverse uh, symptoms from, from the jab. Right. So the spike protein, I wasn't even sure if it was real. You believe that it is a real protein. Is it part of the... Well, you, you can, there are like six different companies you can buy a vial of it from. So, you know, whatever is in that vial, like is a real thing, but there's no proof that it has ever come from any organism. Um, you know, it's like even even in the conventional virus thinking, they've never, you know, purified out a virus and then separated out the spike protein from it. Like that's never been done. So the spike protein only comes from uh, essentially some kind of fake genetic sequence and it's made in recombinant, you know, DNA in genetically modified organisms, which is, you know, the same way that they manufacture other proteins. And of course, we don't even know if that is the same, you know, if where does it come from in nature, you know, it, when one type of organism makes it in a recombinant way, is it the same as another organism? Like, there's a lot of questions like that. But essentially, they put this gene into some kind of cell culture. 
and it manufactures this protein and then they purify it and put it in these vials and sell it for experiments and other things. Yeah. So it's it's a real thing and it's and it's shown to be toxic in some recent um, experiments. But uh, where does it come from? That's another question. It could be something that was just created for the vaccination and we have no idea if it has any relation to COVID or if it can protect you from anything. Um, there well, was, sorry, it's, you know, spike proteins have been talked about for quite a long time, so it's not exactly a new thing. It's just that they have a, a slightly new sequence for this, you know, supposedly imaginary new virus. Uh, than they had for other ones. But there's, you know, like a spike protein from the uh, other imaginary SARS-CoV-1 from, you know, the SARS uh, epidemic in 2003. So, you know, these go back in time. Are are spike proteins only associated with SARS viruses or are they found in other locations? They're supposedly in all coronaviruses. And then um, I think they, you know, may be associated with other things. But, you know, it's all um, kind of made up anyway, because remember, I told you about those particles that they see in, you know, kidney biopsies and, um, and other places that they also see in these tissue culture experiments. Well, it's those little dots on the outside, they say that's the spike protein. But here's what's really interesting. And this, there was a study from Australia actually called the, the Rapid Isolation and Identification of SARS-CoV-2, I think, something like that. And in that, they did this tissue culture experiment, but they couldn't find the little dots on the outside of the particles. So what they did is they put it, mixed it with a digestive enzyme that digests proteins. And then after they digested the proteins, they saw these little dots. And so obviously this, you know, is just a made up thing because that's kind of like, you know, if you're looking for a chicken, but then all you see are ducks. So you put chicken feathers on the duck and say, there's a chicken. That's a great analogy. I love that one. <laughs> that's really, really good. So, yeah, we, it, it's all guesswork. The entire thing is just guesswork. There's absolutely no evidence or proof of any of these things. And yet our entire world is being controlled right now by this guesswork. And um, I have recently heard a theory. I know, I know about the lab leak theory that Fauci um, supposedly was funding a laboratory in Wuhan and there was a leak they were, they were um, testing gain of function on the coronavirus there. It got carried out by one of the lab assistants or whatever and caused an outbreak. But the other theory that I've recently heard is that this plan has been in the works for many years, as you've said, and the fact that there may have been an escape from the lab in Wuhan, which obviously didn't really seem to suffer a whole lot, despite the videos that we saw at the very beginning of people falling flat on their face in the street, um, that it is possible that they decided to move this ahead at the time simply because that was a great excuse for them, and it was right after event 201. I I honestly don't know um, what the case is, but do you have a theory yourself as to how this thing came about, how we ended up starting this um, epidemic? Was it Fauci? Was it the United States funding? Was it Wuhan? Well, the the thing is completely made up. So all of that is just a story. I mean, any of the, you know, if you look at the actual, what they, 
say they were doing with that research is they're just figuring out how to make more poisonous vaccines. There's nothing that they, they can't create a virus because if viruses don't exist. So I think actually that story is being propped up now uh, as a way to keep the virus narrative going because, you know, then, then that, and that's also keeps the fear going. I mean, how scary is that if they have really have some kind of lab created weapon that is a, uh, you know, uh, invisible particle, but it can, you know, be unleashed anytime and, and kill everyone and everyone's vulnerable to it. When you're told that, you know, and then they say there's a genetic treatment to prevent it, what are you going to do? You're going to line up and take it. So, you know, I think that's really what the story is. This whole event was a very well coordinated and planned years in advance. And you can find lots of documents talking about it. And there were lots of, you know, planning sessions, uh, so-called tabletop exercises like the uh, SPARS and the uh, Event 201. So essentially, they just had a story. They had, you know, some fake video footage of people dropping like flies in Wuhan. They had Drosten ready with a test even before they even... Uh, you know, came up with uh, the particulars about the virus, already related it to bats, already related it to SARS, you know, because he had the sequences, he could, you know, basically make a test based on that and make a lot of money. And then the whole thing was launched when the UN announced the, you know, pandemic status, and you had the, um, you know, Neil Ferguson with the crazy predictions and you had similar crazy predictions in other parts of the world. It was all coordinated. Um, and then, you know, it was locked down everywhere. Yep. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's very true that, that you can look back and see the plan. There was the lockstep, like you talked about, which was more than 10 years ago. And, uh, it, the whole thing is laid out for anybody who wants to look. Now, recently in our parliament, we had a senator, Malcolm Roberts, who asked questions at what's called Senate estimates, which are hearings where senators get to ask questions of experts. And of course, COVID uh, vaccinations were talked about there. And um, Senator Roberts asked the representative of the TGA, whether or not the ingredients in the COVID shots could change our DNA in any way. And he was told by the TGA that not only can it not change DNA, but it would be illegal in any country in the world to sell a product that is capable of changing DNA, that that is absolutely verboten. I know that um, the virus doesn't exist, but can any of the components in this vaccine, uh, the RNA that's in there, uh, or any of the contaminants, can they alter the human DNA? Has that been looked at? Well, um, you know, it's interesting you ask about altering DNA because what that really is uh, called mutagenicity, or does it cause mutations? And that is uh, the kind of study that's required for a drug to be approved. But of course, it wasn't looked at. And in fact, it's not really done for any vaccines. But that would be also related to does it cause cancer? But I think what you're really asking is, you know, does it permanently modify the genetic uh, code of individual cells? And this is a, a really impossible to answer for sure, because it hasn't been studied. 
Um, so you have to make inferences, um, you know, but the proof would be uh, to to sequence the DNA of cells that have been, you know, transfected with this type of genetic uh, therapy and then uh, see what it shows. But certainly with the um, Johnson & Johnson uh, technology, with the uh, adenovirus, that is pretty clear that it works by inserting the foreign gene into the host's DNA. Um, that's according to, you know, what the Harvard researchers who were developing this system uh, described. And I had reported that quite a while ago uh, with Spiro Skouris. Um, with the R mRNA, it's a little bit more difficult to discern because there is a process that RNA gets converted into DNA and it happens in every cell. It's called reverse transcription. And so that could certainly happen, but does it actually happen? That I don't think is known. But it's also important to know that the whole theory of what they tell us about genetics is not really accurate. Um, you know, what they say is, for example, that all of the proteins, which carry out all the functions and form the major structures in your body, are coded for in your DNA in genes. And that what happens is that the DNA gets uh, transcribed into RNA for a particular gene, and then that RNA um, meets up in the, a different part of the cell and actually makes the protein that's coded for with that gene. But here's the problem. They say that there are over 100,000 different proteins in human cells, but there are only about 20 to 25,000 genes. So where do 75% of the proteins come from? We don't really know. And there are some different theories, but this is not really looked at in the mainstream genetics. So when we're trying to, you know, see like, will it go into our DNA? That may not even be the important question to answer, right? The important question, in my opinion, is, you know, how long do the cells, if they do actually do something different based on having this mRNA? Like, do they make a spike protein and how long does that happen? Um, if they divide, if that cell divides, do the daughter cells also make spike protein? Are there any spike protein genes found in like the uh, germ cells, like in eggs or sperm that could be passed on to the next generation? I think we'd, we'd have to actually do scientific experiments to know because, you know, when you start messing with these things and they're not fully understood, I think you can have a lot of uh, surprising outcomes. And, you know, that's happened throughout uh, molecular genetics history. We've seen that with the polio vaccine, with the contamination of simian virus 40, where um, parents who had received the vaccine... Well, now that, that doesn't exist either, simian <laughs> virus 40. Okay. So you're just talking about, you know, another poison that might have, you know, something that they can test with a PCR. But, and it, maybe it's a particular poison, uh, but it's, there's not a virus. There's, there's never been one demonstrated to actually exist called simian virus 40. Okay. So what I was referring to is probably not accurate either because I was thinking about the vaccine being contaminated with a toxin, which, may, which is not a virus, but that toxin incorporated itself into the parents. And when they had a child, the child developed a brain tumor that was associated with that particular toxin. So that, to my mind, would have meant that 
it had permanently incorporated, if that is the actual cause of that brain tumor, um, right. it had permanently incorporated with their DNA. Right. So that's, uh, you know, just a lot of assumptions it is. Uh, to make. But certainly, you know, when a child is forming in the mother, right, the mother's blood is the child's blood. Right. So they share they're sharing everything. So if there are, you know, a certain toxin that gets into the mother, it's going to get into the baby. And then, of course, this continues through nursing. Um, and, you know, some things are more likely to be in breast milk and they generally can be tested. But, you know, there'll be there'll be toxins in there. That's definitely been demonstrated. So it could be that it wasn't until the child reached a certain level of development that you could ascertain that there was a problem or that it took time for the tumor to develop um, because of, you know, just normal growth and maturation. Uh, you know, that the body tries to contain and process uh, toxins. In fact, that that's what I think is the the real job of the immune system and really of all the of the many of the microorganisms in your body is that they manage and process toxins. And, you know, you're creating your own toxins all the time, waste products, right? You know this uh, because every time you go to the toilet, you're expelling them from your body. Or every time you blow your nose into a tissue or cough or, or whatever, or even cry or exhale, right? poisons are coming out of your body. I heard one um, analysis that there were something like over 3000 different chemicals that come out in your breath <laughs> because we're exposed to so many chemicals in our environment, um, you know, in addition to the biological ones. So, um, you know, this is a, um, a normal process. And of, of course, so it, these toxins going to get into the uh, child and your body tries to get rid of them and contain them as much as possible. But if it's unable to, because, you know, the amount is too high and the body can't store it safely or, you know, more comes in, um, you know, like, for example, like, you know, did the child get the, uh, you know, vac the hepatitis vaccination on the day of birth, right? That would have contributed uh, more toxins. Mm. And, uh, and then it could be a quickly a situation that, um, you know, the body can't contain and it tries to form a tumor to contain it. And then, of course, if that can't contain it, then it becomes fatal. So because I have um, believed this, this virus theory, I have drawn this conclusion, made this link between what the mother had gotten and what the child developed when that link may not actually even be accurate. Um, with the COVID shot, however, I'm not sure if you've heard, there was a report of a young mother who was breastfeeding a child, got the vaccine, and the child died, and they're saying it's because of the spike protein in the vaccine. Right. Do you Have you heard that at all or no? Because I think that was in the... Well, that's a, much more of a, that's a much more of a likely situation. Of course, you know, I, I can't tell you if that's the truth or not. You know, you'd have to know all the specifics of the information. And also, to my knowledge, you know, this is something before they give it to any, you know, woman of childbearing age, they should test, uh, test it further to see if it would be in the breast milk, for example, the spike protein, mm -hmm. you know, because it's supposed to make your body make the spike protein, right? And, and now it's been shown in one small study to be in your blood, at least for two weeks after receiving the injection. So it goes stands to reason that it would be also in the breast milk and it is known to be toxic. So, 
you know, if the baby ingested it, I mean, I don't know if it can survive the stomach acid. That would be the one question. Or did it get absorbed through the mucous membranes? You know, you'd have to, you'd really need to do a lot of experiments to understand this. But, you know, it certainly with a nursing mother, it's much more easy to see transmitting some toxin uh, because, you know, the breast milk is all of their nutrition and fluids. So it's all they're putting in their body. And if it contains a poison, then they're getting a lot of that poison. And I know from myself when I was pregnant with my children, and and that's not 50 years ago, that's 30 years ago to 25 years ago, we were told not to even take an aspirin, not to have a, a glass of wine, not to drink coffee, because all of these things could affect the baby. And yet here we have, first, the flu vaccine during pregnancy, then the DPT vaccine during pregnancy, and now these shots during pregnancy with absolutely no evidence that they're safe or that they provide any benefit whatsoever to either the mother or the child. And um, again, it has to make you think that there is another agenda here uh, with the number of babies who are being lost Um, by mothers and with the number of women who are having menstrual and fertility issues and men as well. I've been hearing about um, uh, proctologists saying that men are turning up with absolutely no sperm after getting these shots. Uh, You have to wonder what the actual agenda is here uh, because they haven't done the studies to show that these things don't cause this. But the lack of evidence is not the same as evidence. And uh, we really need to use the precautionary principle, and that's just something that's gone right out the window here. Um, (laughs) I want to ask you to put on your psychiatrist hat one more time, uh, because I'm looking at what's happening in Australia. I I don't know. Are there borders closed between states in the United States? Can you travel freely from state to state there? Yes, absolutely. There there are no borders uh, closed. There are um, or have been states that had some kind of quarantine requirements, but there was only one place I know of that w- enforced it, which was Hawaii. And I, I believe they still do to some degree. And they actually had soldiers enforcing it there from the National Guard, checking up on people for, you know, 10 days or whatever the requirement was. But other than that, no, it's completely free. And in fact, we in the United States are extremely unique compared to all of the other uh, Five Eyes nations and and the rest of Europe um, and South America. I mean, pretty much everywhere. Uh, there is We have not had any lockdowns requiring us to stay indoors since March of 2020. Wow. <laughs> and just for a couple of weeks. Now, there have been different levels of restrictions on gatherings and businesses and uh, some places are, or most places that were following those, um, not everyone, like I've never followed any rules uh, whatsoever. Okay. Um, and there are other people like us and, you know, uh, perhaps it's easier to do that in the United States, although you still face a lot of adversity. But, you know, the situation you're having and that's in the UK is also in Canada. I mean, there people are getting arrested uh, you know, just for um, not wearing a mask or for attending a peaceful uh, protest, all kinds of things. Um, you know, it's really a horrible situation yes, um, we, in we almost everywhere. 
We have a pastor in Melbourne, very much like the situation in Canada. Um, he was arrested and spent 17 days in jail for the crime of inciting church. That was the actual crime right. he was charged wow. with. But what I want to know is there's a constant change. Constantly, you'll open the border, you'll close the border. You'll open the border, you'll close the border. You'll say masks are required. Oh, no, they're not. You don't have to wear them anymore. Right. It's keeping people on edge. Is this part of the plan, do you think? Uh, no, absolutely. So if you recall earlier, I mentioned uh, a recent book that was uh, written by a psychologist on a committee um, uh, charged with developing psychological strategies to uh, instate fear. And so in, in that, and also there's some other documents about neurolinguistic programming, where that is a big part of it, that to keep changing the rules, to keep people guessing, never certain of what's going on, they're more likely to follow things, they're more likely to, to uh, continue to be in a fear state um, and um, you know not resist, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it's funny that you mentioned about the military in Hawaii because last week, uh, Greg Hunt, our Minister for Health, announced that they were putting the Australian Defence Forces in charge of the COVID shot campaign from now on. Um, they are going to be, and I don't know yet, I'm calling the Department of Defense today to find out exactly how that's going to work, but it's called Operation COVID Shield. and. Uh, earlier this year, new legislation was passed in Australia that basically allowed the Australian Defence Forces and any foreign military that the Australian government wanted to bring in to assist uh, to do anything um, where it comes to health and quarantine and not to be held accountable should anyone die or be injured as a result. So it's chilling that this has happened. Um, our, our overall vaccination rate, our overall acceptance of these genetic modification shots is about 20%. So about 80% of Australians have either said no or just haven't gotten around to it lately. And the government has egg on their face. And one has to wonder if bringing the military in is a way of threatening people so that they have to take the shot. And I really hope and pray that's not the case. Um, and I also hope and pray that America stands up because we're all counting on you to um, get rid of this situation so the rest of us can get our freedoms back. Uh, do you see any sign of that happening? Well, I think that's a big mistake. <laughs> I think you've got to do it for yourself. Everyone has to do it for themselves. Um, you know, we're going to do what we have to do here. But, you know, right now already we're not experiencing what you are. And, uh, you know, it's important. You, you have to show that spirit. I mean, gosh, the Australian energy that you see at, uh, you know, Australian football or, uh, you know, at other events, like where is all that testosterone? That, that's what, you know, you need to muster up over there. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think a, a huge problem is, is that uh, you let them take your guns away. And they did the same thing in Canada last year, uh, incredibly. And I, I, you know, I'm not advocating for violent revolution, but in the United States, the fact that there is such high rates of gun ownership has to be a major reason why we're not facing uh, anywhere near the level of tyranny anywhere else. And I'll tell you that for now more than 14 months in a row, there have been record gun sales. I mean, there is, you know, hardly any inventory. The, the prices of bullets have like doubled and tripled. 
um, because everyone sees, you know, what's going on uh, and what's coming. And, uh, you know, I mean, you can actually just look at your country, for example, and say, you know, that's where things are going here. And all you want to do is have, you know, a lot of bullets mm. uh, to be ready. I agree with you. And I know Thomas Jefferson said that the Second Amendment was not important to protect the United States against foreign enemies. It was to protect Americans from the government. Right. And, and he was absolutely yes. right. The government has become our enemy and we are at war with them or they are at war with us. We don't want this situation. And uh, I think you're right. We do have to stand up and take care of this ourselves. Um, as an American by birth, I do feel very strongly that uh, Australians, there's an expression in Australia, she'll be right, mate. And it's basically saying, um, you know, everything will be fine. It'll work itself out. Don't you worry. And it's not. It's not. We have to take the matter into our own hands. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's like the little things in life, you know, like that, uh, you you know, you forgot to get more butter at the store, <laughs> you know, and then the neighbor uh, lends you some butter. Like that's what that applies to, you know, or. Uh, maybe you ran out of shrimp for the barbecue, but, uh, you know, <laughs> we're, we're talking about uh, a very, a very different situation. Yeah, we are. We are. It's a serious, serious matter. And uh, people need to wake up. Um, Andrew, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. And I have you have told me in a very gentle way that I really need to change my thinking about viruses and I really need to think <laughs> this thing through before I speak about it because even though I do accept what you're saying is true, uh, years of training and, uh, and belief have to be overcome. So I have my own cognitive dissonance here um, in a way, well, even though I'm ready you know, to accept uh, it. I, I really appreciate you saying that. And also, like, you know, don't, necessarily just believe me you should you're capable of looking at this material yourself and confirming you know that am, am i saying you know what is it actually what's going on out there um but this is the reason why it's so hard to grasp because this is a fundamental you know issue this is how you understand the system or this is the paradigm right um that you all your life right germs make you sick you've you've known that, right? You never questioned it, right? You've just known it. You didn't realize that you didn't actually know it, right? It's really someone else was telling you that and you repeated it. Um, so if you're going to be open to challenging that and saying, you know, is there really evidence for this or is there a better explanation that has much more evidence? You're going to have to shift your thinking about everything that's built upon that. Right. So if you get a sniffle, right, your thought might be to stay away from other people, for example. Right. You have. So like even that little thought. Right. Yeah. Would um, take time to change your reaction. So I had to go through that as well. You know, I just let myself go through it and I caught myself all the time saying words that, you know, didn't quite fit <laughs> anymore because they, you know, the old meaning uh, wasn't wasn't true. Yeah. So, you know, forgive yourself and like, you know, and what, what happens is that as you go through the process that you start to um, release the fear because you, you now know that there's no little invisible bugs out there that are going to make you sick. Mm. 
You know, if you get sick, it's it's most likely it's something you did to yourself. Uh, now you might not have known that it was harmful, right? You might not have known that in r many brands of rice they put plastic bits of rice to <laughs> cut the cost, for Is example, right? You may not. Yeah, yes, wow. you can uh, you can do a test if you put it in a frying pan and see if the plastic pieces there they'll burn. So. Um, you know, but so you may not have known this, but you might have still eaten the plastic rice and it made you sick in some way. Right? right. So, but once you know that, then you realize that actually you can then just do something different and return to health. And so it gives you a new freedom and a new sense of sovereignty because, you know, why most people were willing to follow all of these um, losses of freedom, right, was to protect their health and, you know, and their neighbor, right? Because even if it's not our responsibility to, to take care of our neighbor's health, we certainly don't want to make them sick, yeah, right? That's right. <laughs> but if you understand that, that you can't make people sick unless you poison them, right, um, then you don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. You don't have to worry when you're online at the grocery store and the person is sneezing behind you, right? Like that, you might get sick after that, but only if your body needs it. Um, yeah. Because that is just, a, you know, it's, it's just a detox. And then you'll say, when you do get sick, you'll say, thank you, nose. And, uh, you know, thank you, bacteria for getting this crap out so that I, you know, I can breathe free again. And that is yes. extremely liberating. It is, and it's powerful. And I think the government doesn't want us to be powerful. I'm just going to leave you with this. I have a friend who's a chiropractor. And with her children, when they were growing up, if they would get sick, she never said, you're getting sick. She said, this is fantastic. You're having a wellness expression. Let's get into bed. I'll make <laughs> you some soup, and we can go through this together. And they, as a result, her children, who are now grown, have no fear of illness at all because they don't think of it as illness. They think of it as a wellness expression. And I think that's something we all need to do as much as possible. Yeah, that, that would definitely change your outlook. <laughs> Andy, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think is important to cover before we finish up? Oh, well, I'm sure there is, but uh, <laughs> well, perhaps we could get to it next time. I think that's I think very... this was uh, actually we covered we covered a lot of ground and uh, I think it was it gives a good perspective. Thank you so much for everything. You've taught me a lot and I know you're going to teach our viewers an awful lot as well. And I will link to your website and to all of the other information that you've got online as well with the show notes. So thank you again. I really appreciate this. Thank all right, my pleasure. Thanks. Okay. Um, oh, we're back to very blurry screen. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. I need to just leave you with one bit of information. Well, two, actually. Um, for those of you who are having trouble seeing this, I understand that there were a lot of interruptions. Um, this will be up on the AVN's website tomorrow, linked through to Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon, and also the show notes. Uh, no, thank you, guys. I really appreciate that. That's wonderful. I'm so glad that you were able to uh, enjoy it. Uh, so all of the information will be up tomorrow, and I think it will be a lot clearer as well, though I'm not 100% sure about the beginning and end because I'm looking pretty fuzzy to myself right now. Um, 
and today was the deadline for Minister Greg Hunt to get back to us about um, our concerns regarding the COVID shot campaigns. And he has not responded to us, nor has anyone in his office responded to us. So early next week, we will be consulting with our legal team about the next steps. I would like to ask everyone to watch this space because we will be calling upon you when we are ready to start taking legal action for your assistance. There's one other thing. Um, we've got a comment here from Tab. And Tab, I would really, I think what you're saying is absolutely fantastic. We would love to have a pocket-sized essential vaccination guide. We are a small group of volunteers who are run off our feet right now. Um, any help that you or anyone else watching this can give, please contact us. Contact us via the website or email us at avnenquiries at avn.org.au. Put your hand up and say, I would like to help put something like this together. We would be so happy to work with you. We just need some more uh, boots on the ground right now because, uh, as you can imagine, the uh, demand on our services and our help is higher than it's ever been. And I've been doing this for 27, nearly 28 years now. And uh, I can tell you that it's never been this busy. Uh, and we've never had this many people contacting us for information and help. So um, anything like that, we would love to work with you on and uh, get it done, get it, get it out there, because I think it's a fantastic idea. I think everybody could benefit from a little pocket guide. So thank you. And Adam has just put the email address in the comments, um, avninquiries at avn.org.au. So please copy that and send us an email. One other thing, I have a page called Under the Wire that is a private page. I'd forgotten about it. I set it up uh, a little, about a year and a half ago when we had our first show and I've never used it. I'm going to try and take it public and see if I can stream the next three um, episodes of Under the Wire, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday to Under the Wire, and hopefully we won't have the same interference. So um, tomorrow you might want to check for Under the Wire and see if you can follow the page and share it from there as well. Thank you all so much for coming along. Thank you for helping to share this, and uh, let's hope we can overcome this disgusting uh, censorship from fake book and get the word out there that people have the right to informed choice and need to be able to access the information uh, from our government, from our medical community, and certainly from the media in a transparent and unbiased way, not the way that it's being shared right now. Thank you all again. Have a good night, and I'll see you tomorrow night on Under the Wire. Bye-bye.